I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan, web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. How healthy are Americans? Clearly, the answer these days is pretty bleak, when, to date, more than 800,000 Americans have died of COVID. Life expectancy in the United States fell by one and a half years in 2020, the biggest single-year decline since World War II. But there were concerning trends even before COVID. After a 50-year rise, life expectancy flattened out beginning in 2010 and even declined slightly after 2014. This may not surprise you if you've heard about the so-called deaths of despair coming from suicides and drug and alcohol-related reasons. What you may not be aware of is that during the last 35 years, there's also been a widening disparity in life expectancy across states. The reasons for this are complex, but as discussed in the article, Rising Geographic Disparities in U.S. Mortality, just published by the American Economic Association in one of their flagship journals, there are lessons to be learned from differences across states. One of the co-authors of that article is my guest today, Ellen Mera. Ellen is a professor of health economics and policy at the T.H. Chan School of Public Health at Harvard University. She is also an elected member of the National Board of Medicine. Ellen, welcome to Econofact Chats. Thanks, Michael. Ellen, following up on the title of your article, how big are geographic disparities in U.S. mortality? Thanks, Michael. Well, they certainly are big. Let me take a moment to remind people of of what we did. So our focus is on midlife mortality, so deaths to those between the ages of 25 and 64. And we look at differences across nearly all U.S. states And we present some numbers on how these disparities changed over time, as well as some current state-by-state comparisons. And consistent with some emerging evidence from epidemiological studies, we confirm that these gaps in mortality across U.S. states have widened since around 1980. And they've widened a lot. So for example, by 2016, West Virginia's midlife mortality rate was twice that in Minnesota. It's kind of mind-boggling. And these differences are especially stark among people without a college degree. But even more surprising, maybe, to some who say, I'm not surprised there's differences across states, these differences weren't always present. They weren't really there in 1980. Are there any particular examples of states that might have changed their rankings or moved from better to worse? Um, yes, there are. In in the quarter century between 1992 and 2016, for example, take the difference between California and Ohio. In 1992, the age-adjusted mortality rate for these two states was nearly identical. But while California experienced a really remarkable decline in mortality rates, 
Ohio's death rate hardly budged. So you're not the first to notice rising disparity. I mentioned before the deaths of despair, the work of um, Angus Deaton and Case. What have other researchers looked at as a possible causes of this rise in mortality rates? You're right. And, and people have been looking at this. And in fact, given the recent evidence of rising disparities in mortality by education, explanations related to education are often put forth to explain these differences. So in fact, that California-Ohio comparison I mentioned, at first blush, it's consistent with such an explanation because mortality in a high education state like California may have declined by more because of a national trend favoring more highly educated people. That is, we see mortality rates dropping more rapidly among college graduates than among other Americans. In our paper, we explicitly test how this non-college penalty, as we refer to it, of higher mortality for those not graduating from college contributed to the rising cross-state disparities in mortality. Related to this, if highly educated people migrate to a state like California more than to states like Ohio, this is another way education could contribute to rising cross-state disparities in mortality. But in fact, in the paper we do an exercise to test this explanation, we ask how much would mortality gaps rise if there were no change in the share of college-educated people um, across states since 1992? And the answer is that wouldn't explain much of it. So what's going on if it's not education? Is it just that education is correlated with lots of other things? Well, I, I think I'm glad you're asking, because I think the other thing that people turn to immediately is, isn't this income inequality? And in fact, as we started this paper, we thought we would learn that long-term income changes or wage changes were playing a role, because mortality isn't the only thing that's becoming more equal over time across states. After decades of convergence in earnings across states, Around the same time in the 1980s, that convergence stalled and even reversed. Um, but what we found in our paper is that rising uh, income inequality really didn't explain these differences. And, and we can talk about that more in a bit. So it doesn't seem to be solely education. It doesn't seem to be solely income inequality. Well, what's left over then? So in the paper, we talk about place effects as a third explanation. And what does that mean? So these could be a variety of things. After you take out income changes over time and educational changes over time. So the, the overall health environment is a function of policies that affect the healthcare system in a state, the share of its population able to access healthcare, and the health of a population. So on the policy side, you could think everything from taxes on tobacco or sugary drinks or infrastructure that encourages physical activity, such as safe spaces to exercise. Um, and you can certainly think about how a state approaches folks who may be uninsured and whether they try to expand access uh, to health insurance. But we also know that health behaviors like smoking or other substance use can have a profound influence on health outcomes. 
both the behavior of people that affect health outcomes and the overall health environment affect those outcomes. Case and Deaton really focused on deaths of despair in response to things like local job loss, changes in social structure, and other economic consequences of those things. But long-run changes are also important. Changes in states' policies or health investments that enhance health and longevity. So if you're looking at state-by-state effects, I guess one of the things that is important is that states can differ in their policies, and that's what you're focusing on to a large extent. They can also differ in the way people behave, but state by state, the policies are sort of within the state borders. In the article, you talk about what you call health capital, where capital here means something very specific to economists. Economists refer to physical capital like factories and equipment and human capital like education and training. So what do you mean by health capital? Of course. This concept, which was pioneered by Michael Grossman in the 1970s, and it's been considered by many others, including Case and Deaton, it's simply the notion that individuals invest in health capital through behaviors like exercise, diet, or medical care. So are there like two state examples where states otherwise being similar would have sort of very different health capital? Um. Sure. I think a great example of that is Victor Fuchs's classic observation about Utah versus Nevada. So Fuchs observed that Utah had much lower death rates than its neighboring state, Nevada, even though those states have similar levels of income, education, and access to health care. He argued the gap could be explained by the differences in behavior across those states you know, noting big differences in smoking, drinking, and family structure, comparing Utah, where members of the Mormon church are prominent, and Nevada, which of course is where we have Las Vegas or Sin City. So it isn't just behavior that builds health capital, but policies. And of course, many behaviors, we should say, are influenced by policies. So you're taking a gamble if you live in Nevada, I suppose. (laughs) Pun intended. Yeah, pun intended. So we know policies can help increase physical capital. For example, you can have depreciation allowances and taxes. So there's a a greater return for investment in factories and equipment. And also in human capital, um, there are policies like provision of public education. What are some policies that can help foster greater health capital in the country? Sure. Well, there's good evidence that things like higher tobacco taxes, for example, greatly lowered use of tobacco. We also know that states that expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act have been shown to have better trends in a number of health outcomes, including mortality, compared with those that did not. And a growing literature has has documented causal effects of the implementation of Medicaid in the 1960s with long-lasting beneficial health and labor market effects decades later among the earliest Medicaid-enrolled infants. Um, It turns out later expansions of Medicaid to low-income pregnant women also seem to improve the health, not just of the women, but their children decades later. So this variation in health capital across states, which you're linking very explicitly to policies like Medicaid expansion, is linked to differences in mortality rates, right? 
Well, yes, that's that's what we think. In the paper, we hypothesize that diverging midlife mortality and its tightening relationship between mortality and income reflect long-run effects of these behaviors and policies related to health capital. Um, the data really suggests that policies and in health investments in high-income states have evolved over time with long-run benefits to health and midlife mortality. And I would note, in contrast to lots of the literature that really focused on things like deaths of despair, you know, and, and saying kind of, well, this must relate to economic outcomes. A lot of that literature is really focused on the short run. They're focused on things like business cycle changes and unemployment rates. And they didn't find much relationship between those deaths and short-term changes in business cycles. And, and I think one of the things that I hope people will take away in this paper, that what we're talking about are things that evolved slowly over decades. These did not happen in the span of a business cycle. Well, I guess it takes a while to die if the source of death is like cirrhosis of the liver or you know addiction to drugs, right? So you wouldn't expect it to be linked very closely to these more high-frequency events like business cycles. That's exactly right. But then there is an erosion over time if the infrastructure is not there to provide people with health. Exactly. So... One of the striking things to me in your article was the way in which the correlation between state-level mortality and state-level income changes over time. You found that there was pretty much a negligible relationship between the two in 1968, but then there was a strong relationship in 2019. And by then, lower mortality was strongly associated with higher state income. What do you think happened to cause this change over these decades? Thanks, Michael. We really want to stress that it isn't income per se that's driving these changes. If it was income, we would have expected to see the change in income associated with the change in mortality, but that's not what we found. Instead, what we saw was a lining up of mortality according to a state's income in the 1990s uh, and after 2000. So income is correlated with these place effects. Um, what we think, instead of income driving this, this, is that in the mid-20th century, social structures in low-income states actually may have provided safeguards against bad health outcomes, such as those brought on by a higher propensity to smoke or use alcohol. What are some of those social structures? Um well, for example, they can just be norms in an area. So, for example, there's some research that shows that African-Americans migrating from the Deep South during the Great Migration experienced higher levels of mortality than those who stayed home. So the beneficial health, health effects of economic and social improvement were apparently swamped by other forces like health behaviors, smoking, drinking, other things more common in northern cities. So there's a famous work by Robert Putnam, Bowling Alone, about the sort of breakdown of social structures. Um, and I guess what you're saying is that there were health consequences of this as well because of this breakdown of social structures. Is that accurate? Um, you know, I'd say at this point it's a hypothesis, but at, that absolutely seems plausible that as these social structures change, um, so do to do the health uh, health effects that are related to them. 
Well, we've talked a bit about the so-called deaths of despair that were identified by Angus Deaton and Anne Case. Um, is this a possible source of differences across states? Um, do they happen more in lower income states? Is that something that's going on or is that just fold in with all of the place effects that you've been identifying? Yeah, so this is naturally a question that we had as we entered this work. There's been so much attention to deaths of despair, and they're particularly important for this age group. We're focused on those 25 to 60, uh, 64. But even among that group, deaths of despair are about 16% of deaths. And so what we're saying is that other causes actually are a bigger factor. Now, what we showed in the paper is that uh, different causes of death were becoming more correlated with income over time. So that is states with higher income or having relatively lower rates of mortality. And that was true for the leading causes of death, cancer, cardiovascular disease, um, you know, lung disease, all these other things. Uh, for deaths of despair, that pattern was true until about 2008, and then it actually reversed. So it's just not lining up with income the same way that these other causes of death are. So, you know, to answer your question more briefly, deaths of despair doesn't explain what we're seeing today across so states. They're there, but it's not big enough, right? That's right. My first job out of college um, actually was in a health economics consulting firm. And I remember being struck by all the analyses I saw included smoking as a determinant of health outcomes for every kind of disease, not just lung diseases. In your article, you call smoking a sentinel measure of midlife mortality. Can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. We just mean that the extent of smoking in a state reflects a range of public health measures and, and also behaviors and culture in a state. Um, this is why when we analyze how health is affected by smoking, we find really big effects. In fact, it turns out if you estimate, you know, mortality as a function of smoking at different points in time, that coefficient on smoking, that effect of smoking on mortality increases over time. Now, we don't think the biology of smoking has changed over time. Instead, we think that smoking is associated with other behaviors and policies that may not be included in the analysis. So the smoking variable really stands in for those. So when you have a cigarette, you also have a scotch and maybe a hamburger and you do other unhealthy things perhaps. Perhaps, but I don't, I wouldn't assume it's all behavior based. It, it may be that people who are smoking in 2021, when smoking rates have dropped precipitously, they have a lot of things in their lives that are actually um, going against having good health. They may live in areas of high crime or more pollution, or they have stressful jobs. They have, you know, jobs where they work hard physical labor and, and they're literally, you know, being sort of broken down by work over time. So, so there's a lot of things that it can stand in for. So you can put a new warning label on cigarette packages that smoking may be correlated with lots of other bad stuff. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So to conclude, Alan, I'd like to talk about policy. And we touched upon this a little bit earlier, the way in which state-by-state -state policies differ. Your research article discusses geographic disparities 
but they're not immutable. They're associated with places and they're correlated with policies and policies could improve health outcomes in places where they're currently not very good. Would you say that's a correct reading of your work? Yes, absolutely. And thank you for reading our paper and interpreting it as we do on a rather optimistic note in a paper that's about the unhappy topic of death. You know, we conclude that West Virginia and Ohio are not at all doomed to have higher mortality than California and Minnesota. And we're watching this play out in real time as the COVID pandemic and its many surges demonstrate that policies and behaviors that promote access to life-saving vaccines can moderate the deadly effect of a disease like COVID. So while we do not come away with a single smoking gun policy in the paper, we're really optimistic that there's a lot to learn from changes in mortality over time and across geographic areas. So yes, surprisingly, we come away as optimists from this paper. So you don't have a smoking gun, but you do have smoking. Yes. <laughs> yes, a lot of it. Well, Ellen, thanks a lot for speaking with me today about this, an issue that has obvious importance, but is even more highlighted during this era of the pandemic. I appreciate the work that you and your co-authors have done and helped illuminate this very important topic. Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity today, and you're very, very welcome. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. You can subscribe on our site to our newsletter, that will let you know when we publish new memos and new podcast episodes. Please feel free to share this podcast and our memos with friends, colleagues, and on social media. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.